Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 158 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, The Blame Game. It's not me, it's you. I've been waiting for a while to do an episode to uncover one of the most insidious and unfortunately most common leadership behaviours, blaming others when something doesn't go to plan. It happens in a variety of ways. Leaders often blame one of their team members when they don't deliver. Peers point the finger at each other when a project spanning multiple teams runs into trouble. 
Some leaders like to cast the blame on what they call unforeseeable events when they don't meet their targets. And sometimes, people who don't deliver on their accountabilities blame their boss for not giving them sufficient resources. The list goes on. Culturally, this is a cancer that has to be eradicated. When a leader tolerates the blame game as part of the performance evaluation cycle, excuses become the norm and organisational politics find fertile ground. But if you refuse to entertain the blame game, things become much simpler and people will eventually be forced to accept the accountability that comes with their role. So I'm going to open up with a few examples of what the blame game looks like for both our political and our business leaders. I'll revisit and update an old episode of No Bullshit Leadership. Then I'm going to explore why weak leaders and low accountability cultures open the door for the blame game. And I'll finish with some tips for creating the right culture. No blame, no excuses. So let's get into it. There are plenty of real-life examples of what happens when leaders allow a culture of blame to fester. If it's not treated, it quickly becomes part of the culture of a team, an organisation, or even a whole professional vocation. Consider politics. Now, I normally like to stay away from government and politics, but it provides such a stunning example of leadership failure that I can't help myself in this case. And look, I'm not being selective here. It's all flavours of political persuasion. And unfortunately, it seems to infect the whole system of government and sometimes the administrations that support them. The whole political process relies on the blame game, and there are very few outliers who don't play that game. Almost every politician alive, regardless of their political affiliation, knows the rules, and it's a key cultural marker of that profession. Now have a think about how the political process works. When good things happen on a politician's watch, they take credit for it, regardless of whether it had anything to do with their own decision-making or policy settings. The classic example is economic performance. When the economy's going well, the political leader of the day will say that it's because of her leadership and policies. Now, more often than not, we know that's complete bullshit. The forces that govern economic performance are often out of the hands of political leaders and it always takes longer to move the needle than people think. Just consider the impact of immigration and birth rates on gross domestic product. Population growth drives rises in GDP, which in turn supports economic prosperity. But it's a slow burn. A change in immigration policy by a government isn't going to change GDP anytime soon. And unless you're China, governments have very little influence on birth rates. The other factor that drives growth is GDP per capita, which is a measure of workforce productivity. This also takes a long time to make a shift in a positive direction. So any politician that boasts about positive economic performance in their first 6 to 12 months of governing is usually taking credit for something that they had nothing to do with. Imagine, though, when those same results are negative. The political leader of the day is more than happy to blame their predecessor, the pandemic, the trade decisions made by other countries, or other factors that they say are outside of their control. Let's face it, if you take credit for the good, you also have to accept accountability for the bad. But we've become so desensitised to this that we tend to believe any crap a politician puts out there if we are of the same political persuasion. And we disbelieve it if they're on the other side of the political divide. This is our confirmation bias in action. 
Now, watching our politicians through COVID has been really instructive. When their decisions are popular, they take credit for those decisions. However, when something goes wrong, they're really quick to throw the medical experts who advise them under the bus. And the classic standoff between federal and state government responsibilities, which, at least in Australia, I defy anyone to understand fully, provides fertile ground for blame shifting and a lack of accountability. Now, think about this same phenomenon in the context of business. Many CEOs will adjust their performance targets when things outside of their control occur in a given performance assessment period. These negative events are often put in the category of one-off or extraordinary items and excluded from the underlying results. This way, their bonuses are protected from much of the downside risk. Now, I've seen some past masters at this manipulation in my time. Somehow, there are certain CEOs who always make bonus, regardless of company performance, and they get paid accordingly. And I'll admit there have been times in the past when I've actually been the financial beneficiary of these manipulations, as the bonus criteria apply to a component of every executive's short-term incentive payments. The spoils flow downhill, just, of course, to a lesser extent than they're accumulated at the top. The key point here is that there's actually a well-worn and structured system for blaming external events for poor performance and moving the goalposts to account for this. And it has tacit approval throughout boardrooms and executive offices the world over. But on the other hand, think about how many times you've seen a CEO or board adjust the targets to make them more difficult to achieve when an unexpected piece of good fortune that wasn't anticipated in the plans actually comes through. It is rare, if ever, that this happens. As I always like to say, there's a lot of luck and timing in this CEO caper, so you just need to take the good with the bad. Now, I just want to give you a quick update on a very old episode of the podcast, the relevance of which will soon become obvious. Way back in episode 31, and we're talking April 2019 here, I examined some of the leadership failings of Theranos, the Silicon Valley darling that fell from grace when the Wall Street Journal uncovered a massive fraud relating to its supposedly revolutionary blood testing equipment. The chief executive, Elizabeth Holmes, and the chief operating officer, Sonny Balwani, were indicted and are set to face 10 charges of wire fraud and two charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, carrying a maximum prison sentence of 20 years. So back in episode 31, I highlighted the internal culture that had developed inside Theranos of bullying and intimidation, which is one reason that the fraud was able to be perpetuated for so long. In that episode, I called Holmes a pathological liar with a compelling vision. Now, nothing I've seen, heard or read since then has given me cause to reassess that rather harsh judgment. The leaders of Theranos created a culture of secrecy and bullying. If anyone inside the firm spoke out, even internally, about the problems that were inherent in the technology, they were silenced. They were labelled as being disloyal. But truth and loyalty are not antonyms. Challenging the things that you know aren't right isn't disloyal and shouldn't be punished. If it is, that's the sign of a really sick culture. But this is what Theranos managed to create. Now, the reason I bring this up now and in the context of this episode is that the blame game is alive and well in the Theranos proceedings that we're seeing now in court. Even back then, 
when I recorded episode 31, the excuses were flowing thick and fast. In early indictment proceedings, the Chief Operating Officer, Sonny Balwani, when grilled about the abject failure of the testing equipment, offered the defence that he was not a technical specialist. How could he have possibly known? According to his defence team, he was simply failed by his technical experts. It was their fault. Now remember, these are the same technical specialists who, when they raised the problems with the technology, Balwani silenced either through bullying or removing them from the organisation altogether. So last week, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes finally got underway. Balwani's trial will be deferred until next year, which is normally a sign that the defendants have parted ways in terms of their defence strategy. Lo and behold, early discovery of the case for the defence has outlined a novel strategy put forward by Elizabeth Holmes, who, by the way, has pleaded not guilty to all charges. Her excuse? Holmes claims that she was in a controlling and abusive relationship with Balwani. She states that she's not responsible for the decision she made as head of the company because her mind was impaired by manipulation by Balwani. The pattern of abuse and coercive control allegedly continued over the approximately decade-long duration of Holmes and Balwani's relationship, including during the period of the charged conspiracies. Citing the syndrome known as intimate partner abuse, the lawyers claim that Balwani completely controlled Holmes, erasing her capacity to make decisions. As a result, Holmes effectively lacked the ability to deceive her victims. This is known as the Svengali defence, taken from the classic 1930s film of the same name. This is a blinder. This has got to be the granddaddy of all blame strategies. It's not me, it's you. Let's move on to consider the dynamics that occur when, as a leader, you allow a culture of blame to thrive. The longer I went through my career, the more I came to believe that excuses are irrelevant. Every single excuse just started to sound to me like the dog ate my homework. But I want to make a very important distinction here. Things inevitably go wrong, regardless of how well you're managing your portfolio. We can't anticipate every possible eventuality. Sometimes, the risks we've identified actually materialise, and we have to work out how to deal with them. Or maybe an unforeseen resignation by a key person leaves us with a capability gap. Or maybe a supply chain issue creates delays that are beyond our control. It happens to the best, it happens to the rest. But the distinction between good management and excuses is down to one thing and one thing only. Timing. When these things do occur, if you take accountability for the problem and proactively look for ways to resolve it with your team, that's what we call excellent leadership. If you go to your boss when these things happen and explain the situation, what you're going to do about it, and how expectations might have to be shifted, that's great leadership performance. But if you cover up, avoid, or hope that things magically improve, then when they don't and you fail to deliver, guess what? The dog just ate your homework. Now, knowing this, why wouldn't every leader behave the right way all the time, instead of hoping that something will change and leave it until the last minute to address? Well, I guess a lot of the time, you know from experience that your boss doesn't want to hear bad news. And all of a sudden, here we are back at episode 31. Culturally, you have to be really strong as a leader to proactively manage a boss above you 
who you know is going to shoot the messenger and blow up when you have to tell them something they don't want to hear. Weak leaders will avoid and just hope that they can delay the explosion for as long as possible, relying on the not-my-fault-boss defence. So as you can see, there are two sides to this. If you're the one who has to deliver the bad news when things go wrong, you have to do so irrespective of your own boss's mood swings and lack of composure. And you have to do so in a way that says, I'm not making excuses. I'm taking accountability for stepping into the breach and fixing this. I own it, and my job is to navigate the organisation through to the other side of this problem. Equally for your people, you have to encourage and reward those who choose to take the path of strength and proactiveness, and to make it clear that post-fact excuses carry no currency. This absolutely rubs off on your team. I want to finish with a quick look at the impacts of the blame culture and give you some easy tips for creating the culture you want. No blame, no excuses. Let's just have a think about what it does to people when you let a culture of blame prevail. Blaming events beyond your control is one thing, but blaming others for your failings is a particularly insidious version of the blame game. This drives a few very unhealthy symptoms through a team. The first is distrust. If you're the type of leader who blames others for failings that you should own, your people are going to see that immediately. They'll also instinctively know that if you ever need to spare yourself any consequences, you'll be prepared to throw them under the bus at a minute's notice. All of a sudden, trust is decimated and the team dynamic changes markedly. People start positioning themselves to shore up their own job security and they'll be prepared to blame others just as you would blame them. The only advice I have for you on this point is this. Don't do it. Even when there are valid reasons for something or you have a reasonable excuse, resist that temptation. Deal with every individual you work with openly and honestly. Now there's one subtle exception here. If someone who isn't in your direct team isn't playing ball with a deliverable that you're relying upon, make it very clear that because of the criticality, you may be forced to escalate that issue to your boss. But how you do this is all important. You don't go behind the person's back and bitch and moan about them. Instead, you tell them in advance that you have to escalate the issue so that your boss can make a decision on the relative priority of your work commitments and give you both guidance on which priorities should prevail. Even better, offer to escalate the issue together. Hey, why don't you come with me so that we can talk to the boss and get some clarity? That normally shakes things up a bit and moves people to action. The second repercussion from allowing a blame culture is unhealthy competitiveness in the team. Now, healthy competitiveness is awesome and probably one of the defining characteristics of a high-performing team. This is about challenging each other, wrestling with ideas to seek the best outcomes and solutions and having a drive to be first amongst equals. Unhealthy competitiveness involves backbiting, undermining others, and playing a political game of impression management with your boss. Now, I believe that any boss who falls for this is doing their people a major disservice, but even the best of us can get sucked in by this occasionally. So my advice here is pretty straightforward. Don't entertain excuses when a leader blames other people for their own failings. If they blame someone in their own team, at any level, it's pretty simple. 
Your answer is this. You are accountable for everything that happens on your watch, so you need to own it. That's it. Isn't this a little harsh, Marty, I hear you ask? Well, no, I don't think so, actually. Accountability comes with leadership territory. If there are failings below you, it's usually because you haven't done the work to develop the right leadership. Or maybe you haven't set stringent enough standards. Perhaps you haven't weeded out your underperformers. You may not have set expectations and objectives correctly. Or maybe you simply took your eye off the ball. Whatever the case, you own it. And when people come to you to blame others, shut them down immediately. If someone tries to blame Pete for something, your immediate response should be, well, have you spoken to Pete? And if so, what did he say? I'd be interested to hear what Pete has to say. Why don't we reconvene this meeting when Pete's available to join us? Now, that should nip the blame culture in the bud pretty quickly. The third and final repercussion from allowing a blame culture is reduced accountability. I speak about the power of strong single-point accountability all the time. This is the key to execution excellence. Letting people squirm out from under their accountability by making excuses and blaming others will weaken your organisation's ability to perform. People gain confidence in leaders who take control in difficult times and shoulder their accountability appropriately. If they see their leader trying to avoid accountability and blaming others, they lose confidence in the whole process. If you want to drive performance from your team, you have to lead from the front. But you've got to be a little careful. Leading from the front doesn't mean doing your people's jobs for them. It means being the poster child for the types of behaviours you'd ideally like everyone around you to demonstrate. When all is said and done, leaders have to eat their own dog food. If you want your team to deliver, you'd better be showing them how. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 158. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with another leader who you know is going to benefit from it. I look forward to next week's episode. Don't lose your best people. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>